1: Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
2: Now, from our nation's capital,
3: this is Bloomberg Sound On! Next year is going to be an ugly election year in which you can expect very little to get done. The debt
4: to has become a pernicious political tool which doesn't help either party. Bloomberg
0: sound on. Politics, policy and perspective from DC's top names.
5: We're confident at the end of the day that the Senate is gonna put American families first. 330 million
3: Americans are expecting and waiting for us to move the ball forward and get stuff done. And when that doesn't happen, it is frustration. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg
1: Radio.
6: Welcome to uh, Thursday afternoon to another Sound On. I am Emily Wilkins with Bloomberg Government. I am a co-hosting with my colleague, Jack Fitzpatrick, filling in for Joe Matthew today. Well, we have a really great show coming up. We are going to be speaking with New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer, talking a little bit about that state and local tax deduction that's holding up the uh, just President Joe Biden's social welfare and tax plan. Right now, uh, Jack, we've got had a really busy day in Congress. We are headed towards the Christmas break, but there's still a little bit that is left to do. Uh, I know we've got the debt limit, Jack, which you've been covering today, yeah. uh, but we also have the social welfare and tax plan that the House has passed and is now in the Senate. And to talk with us a little more about that, we have Congressman Josh Gottenheimer, a Democrat from New Jersey, who has been particularly focused on one aspect of the bill that really impacts his constituents. Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
5: Thanks for having me.
6: Well, I just here. Well, I wanted to start off just by talking about that state and local tax deduction. Action is obviously now in the Senate, where senators are debating allowing taxpayers to take the full deduction if their income is below a certain level. Uh, Congressman, that's obviously different from the House's proposal. Do you support the direction the Senate is taking?
5: Well, really, as you might imagine, uh, I I have to see the details of of what's being proposed ultimately. They're still going back and forth and and the impact it would have on families in my district. And that's what. At the end of the day, we'll decide how I uh, how I assess whether I'm going to vote for it or not vote for it. And but I'll tell you this: uh, what we did in the House um, by massively increasing the cap, and so we can give actually a, a real tax cut to families in my district, where in, in Bergen County, New Jersey, which I represent, one of the counties, the, the uh, median property tax is $15,000, um, and in uh, New Jersey, a uh, nurse and uh, journeyman electrician will, believe it or not, make uh, enough money that when we reinstate SALT, uh, they will get a $3,500 tax cut. So, you know, it depends where you live, like, like in everything in life, uh, it depends where you live and the impact it has on your family. Where I live, uh, SALT is critical to giving people a real tax relief so they have more money in their pockets to afford everything.
4: Congressman, so the, the latest we've heard from the Senate side on this is that Senator Sanders does not want this deduction to end up benefiting the top 1% of earners, which comes out to, I, I believe, about $500,000 a year and above per family. Uh, even if it's that's just a rough ballpark figure, what do you think about that kind of cap on the SALT deduction?
5: Listen, I, I, I don't believe – if you in, – in Vermont, and I understand, listen, Bernie's from – Senator Sanders is from Vermont, right? The median property tax is $4,300, mm-hmm. and the median income is half what it is where uh, I live, and we're losing a lot of people leaving New Jersey because they can't afford it. I, you know, So I get it. In Vermont, Bernie's going to have a different view of, of things. As I said, You know, uh, if a uh, if, uh, nurse and a journeyman electrician in New Jersey are making $225,000 as a couple – that's a very different situation than it might be for Bernie. So he has uh, has a, a different view on these things. But also, like I believe, what we need to do is help the middle class here and help middle class families. And where I live, this is about helping middle class families. And so, I, And Bernie is, uh, you know, he's a socialist. He's got. A, he comes from a things from a different perspective. He's, you know, he's, and uh, as I can't really speak to the socialist party agenda, but I know what 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 we fought for here in the House and what we passed in the House as Democrats. And that raised the SALT cap to $80,000 uh, from $10,000 so we can give actually middle-class families relief and make sure that we don't keep losing people um, who are so important to ensuring that we've got the best teachers in the best schools and that we've got best firefighters and law enforcement and that we're you – know, we've decided as a state in New Jersey to invest in people uh, and, and take care of them and make sure if you're hard-pressed, there's a program for you. In Mississippi – the median property tax is $550. They don't have, they don't stand by folks the way we do, and you know, and I can't speak for Bernie in Vermont, but I'll tell you here in Jersey, what we do is we take care of people, and we need the people to be able to afford things.
6: You know, Congressman. Obviously, that uh, provision is a part of the larger social welfare and tax bill from President Biden. The House has cleared it. It is now in the. You Senate. I mean, the Build
5: Back Better bill. When the, you say that, I sorry. You mean the Build Back? You mean the reconciliation bill? The Build Back Better. I just want. To make you
6: know. Sure. You know, I, I, Congressman. I appreciate your commitment to making sure that you are selling that bill at, at every possible turn. Uh, but right <laughs> no, no, now, I just
5: don't know what bill you, I want to make, We're talking about. That the same that
6: bill. is yes, that is indeed okay. the Build Back Better bill. Okay. I, I try. Okay. I try and spell out a little bit of of what's in it, but, but it, it, it's, it's now in the uh, Senate.
5: There's child care. There's help for child care. There's help for pre-K. There's help fight climate change. And there's salt in mean, stating, you know, given tax cuts and lower prescription drugs.
6: But right now, there's technically nothing because this is not yet a law. It's stuck in the Senate. Uh, Senator Chuck Schumer has said that he wants this to pass by Christmas. Stuck, but-
5: you mean when you say it's stuck, you mean we sent it over three weeks ago and it's being debated?
6: I mean, but it hasn't moved yet and it's time is running out this year. I mean, if the legislation doesn't pass the Senate and the House and get to Biden's desk in 2021, is that going to make this bill harder or potentially completely impossible to pass later?
5: No, no, because we're still in the same Congress starting next year. So the sessions go by two years. And so, um, you know, we do this this in
6: election years are hard to do.
5: No, I'm not at all. Listen, I'm not worried about if we do the right thing, fighting for people and getting what they need and whether we do it a week later. We literally just passed it out of the House a couple of weeks ago. The Senate is debating it. As you know, we did the debt ceiling, uh, which we're going to get done uh, now. And I think we all came together. We got the bipartisan bill done, which was Democrats and Republicans coming together to fight for getting the gateway tunnel built in New Jersey and fixing our roads and our bridges and our drinking water for our kids. So I mean, the action has been—you probably have followed—we've done a ton in the last month, and these are including this. But it takes time; you got to let the Senate debate the issues. So they have it now; they're going to debate as soon as they're done with the debt ceiling. They're going to debate this, and and we'll get it done. And I'm, I'm I'm not at all worried about um, worried about that. What I am worried about, though, is is making sure we fight for the things that are important for the people I represent, including reinstating the sustainable tax deduction and and getting tax cuts for families and making life more affordable for them.
4: So, Congressman, I, I want to make sure we touch on redistricting. I, I actually grew up just outside of your district. I'm from Sparta, New Jersey. That doesn't quite count as nice, your district. Be- it's but, beautiful uh, there. It's It beautiful is. It's very nice. There. We had one restaurant. I don't know if you've ever been to Crow's, but they had, uh, yeah. I don't know, an OK Burger. <laughs> Um, uh, it, what's going to happen praise. to your... Come
5: on, better than OK. <laughs>
4: <laughs> hey, I'm from there, and I don't know if it's better than... I, 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 I'll, I'll sell crows on this show all, all, all the time. If you're in the area, go to crows. Um, I, I was looking at a, a map, a, a proposed, not proposed, but sort of a, an idea by Dave Wasserman on maybe some challenges for Democrats, because the western area of North Jersey is a little more conservative. Uh, and I guess the idea is it's, it's possible that some some Democrat from North Jersey uh, kind of gets thrown to the wolves. I don't know if it would be you or if it would be Congressman Malinowski, but I'm just, I I want to get your take on Do you expect there to end up being a Republican leaning district somewhere in North Jersey? And does that affect you?
5: Well, you know, frankly, what I want to focus on right now is making sure I do a good job at home. And a lot of the stuff is with us. Uh, you know, there's a redistricting commission that addresses mm-hmm. these issues and handle these issues and uh i'm sure they'll they'll work it out you know, i'm optimistic in the end that it'll you know i'm hopeful it'll come out well for all of us um, and so we can keep fighting for the people we represent i don't you know we'll know i think soon how that turns out uh so uh, i'll get back to you on how it turns out but there's lots of different potential maps running around uh, uh, you know but what matters is actually what the commission uh, puts together and agrees to and i'm very proud you know i get to represent sussex county and warren county Say county bergen county new jersey and i'm uh very lucky and i don't care at the end of the day as long as i represent families in jersey i get to fight for them and help them i'll be happy
6: well congressman uh, obviously you held your seat and represented your district for a number of years now but i noticed this past november um your district your constituents voted for the republican challenger for governor is your district getting harder for a democrat to win in
5: and I'm, 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 I've won it three times, and I'm proud of it. I think if you do a good job and fight for and work for everybody, that's what matters. As you might know, I, I co-chair this group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's 29 Democrats and 29 Republicans. We get together every week with one purpose, which is to get things done for folks. We help get the infrastructure built on, the bipartisan structure built on, with Democrats and Republicans. And, and last year, we got the COVID package done, which President Trump signed at the end of the year another round of PPP small business loans for folks, which was critically important and help with the vaccine. So, you know, to me, what matters is if you do a good job and you work with your mayors and your councils and your counties and fight for them and fight and claw back dollars to the state, which is district which I've done um, uh, to try to make life more affordable. That and stand by your cops and your firefighters. You know this from being from Jersey. Sir, you, you get this um, the importance of making sure we, we take care of folks and our veterans. That's what people... We'll grade you on. That's what people grade you on, right? And and to be, uh, uh, it's less about party and much more about, are you fighting for the country?
6: And then you mentioned the Problem Solvers Caucus, which actually played a role in getting together that bipartisan infrastructure bill. Congressman, I'm curious, what's the next big policy for the problem solvers?
5: We're very, I'm glad you asked about that. I'm like, you know, we're, we're very focused on uh, chips and, uh, and and particularly competitiveness with China and making sure that we have more domestic manufacturing here. Uh, we saw during COVID uh, the impact it's had on our supply chain and our and how much it would help. Whether you're talking about ventilators or masks or pharmaceuticals uh, that are critical, uh, we have, we need to have more domestic production. And you know we're so reliant on chips from out of the country that run everything from there's nearly a thousand in F150, of course. Uh, we need them for our ventilators. We need them for, for pretty much uh, everything we operate these days, so farm equipment. So, you know, um, I think it's there's good bipartisan legislation to have to encourage and incentivize more domestic manufacturing mm-hmm. of chips and well. uh, microchips. And so, I, you know, that's a big area where we're, we're really focused.
6: Well, Congressman Josh Gottenheimer, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be keeping a close eye on it. Coming up, we assemble the panel to discuss the agenda Congress has left and the 2022 midterms. I'm Emily Wilkins. This
0: is
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg
4: Radio. Welcome. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick from Bloomberg Government, co-hosting today with my colleague Emily Wilkins. We are in for Joe today. Uh, big show. We just had Congressman Josh Gottheimer, Democrat from New Jersey, on. We are now joined by our panelists for the day, Jeannie Shenzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Amy Tarkanian, Republican strategist, uh, who is a former Nevada State Republican chairwoman. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Let's follow up on the Gottheimer uh, interview. Uh, Emily took the heat. Boy, the Democrats really want <laughs> us to say it's the Build Back Better Act. We can't call it a social tax and spending bill, even though I think that's what it is. Um, what is what's the state of branding for this uh, for this bill, the BBB bill, or whatever we are required to call it, Jeannie?
2: I, I I loved that portion. And thank you to Emily for standing strong on that. Um, you know, I, I think my read of this is that Democrats have paying, been paying particular attention to what people have been saying, which is that they had not been doing a very good job of telling us what is in the bill about talking about the bill and what it's gonna mean for people. And I think you see a really concerted effort. And you, Jack, you and, and Emily know better than I do. I, I kept thinking when Emily was having this back and forth, in fact, did they have somebody come in with some focus group and polling data and give them all a you know a, a shout out as to what they need to be doing? Because they seem to be on this page that we heard from Gottheimer in this conversation. I mean, look, you say Build Back Better, they complain that the media doesn't report
6: what's in the bill, you give it a name that says what's in the bill, and then they complain you're not using Build Back Better.
2: <laughs> you but, can't win, Emily. <laughs> but
6: I, I get it. You know, Democrats absolutely know that they have to sell this. Josh Gottenheimer fully understands that. I, I can't I can't blame him in the slightest. I mean, a- Amy, I wanted to come to you a little bit on this as well. I mean, uh, Congressman Gottenheimer really played down any sort of concerns uh, that this Uh, spending package wouldn't get done this year and and we've seen you know similar comments from the White House but I'm wondering if you can sort of take us take us to reality here how much difficult does it get to pass legislation in an election year
7: well it's extremely difficult especially during an election year I mean I listened to the segment and you were spot on with your assessment when you were asking him you know is this going to, to be is it possible you know, especially during an election year, and you're right. He did do a good job of downplaying it, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be extremely tough, and due to the fact that the messaging has been so terrible and so off, and I fully think that the majority of the moves that this administration makes is due to polling. So there, there's no doubt in my mind that they have not been looking at every single poll because there's there are not, at least I haven't seen there. There are no polls that show. Um, that this is favorable overall. Uh, and a majority of the people don't understand what's in it. And then when you're starting to hear from, say, left-leaning uh, media outlets, you know, like The Hill or The Atlantic, and they're starting to question on the popularity or lack thereof on the bill, you know you're in trouble because now you, I'm looking at an article where actually The Hill talks about the, the spending cuts that are in the Build Back Better bill for hospitals. And and these are actually happening in in undeserved communities. And so that's going to cause a problem when more people start to find out what's actually in it. And I found it interesting, too, that when you were speaking to the congressman, that he wasn't able to rattle off really what was was in it. And it kind of sounded like he still needed to do some more reading. And that's concerning because I think the majority of the House are probably in the same boat.
4: Well, I'll give him some credit for rattling off the key parts, uh, although, I mean, it's a big bill, so it's it can be challenging to brand, even if it is being made clear what's in it. Now, we also talked a little bit about uh, redistricting, and Amy, I really wanted to ask you, you know, we, we touched on New Jersey, uh, but your home state is interesting because the last coverage I've seen from uh, the Nevada Independent is it looks like there's an attempt to kind of try to solidify a 3-1 advantage for Democrats in the congressional delegation for Nevada, but I'm, I'm curious if that can overcome what could be sort of a wave year for Republicans. How, how, how do you think mm-hmm. things are going to play out in Nevada given that Democrats have an advantage in the redistricting process, but obviously a lot of polls are looking good for Republicans?
7: They are. I still think we're going to have a very tough time just because uh, our state party apparatus is it's chaotic and it's Mm -hmm. not, I don't think, uh, functioning the way that it should. But to be fair, I think our Democrats on the other side are also a hot mess and they recently had a takeover uh, of the Democratic Socialists. And so you've got their internal battles as well. That will actually benefit the Republicans. But I do feel that a number of the Republican candidates are going to have to do this on their own, um, without having to lean so heavy upon the actual local state party. Um, they will get help from from the national party, which is great. But you know, even though this redistricting benefits the Democrats for the most part, I find it um, interesting that they really cut into. Uh, Congressional District 1, which has been uh, Congressional District, um, uh, uh, actually you have Dina Titus, mm-hmm. who has been in that seat. And she's actually done an extremely good job. Um, I don't agree with her policy-wise, but she has been a warrior and a champion for the left. And she works extremely hard. And they, they, they did a number on her. And right. so now you're going to see a couple of Republicans jumping on over to the race because they're smelling blood.
6: Well, a little bit of news we have. We reported earlier today that the Senate had taken that procedural vote to move forward on the debt limit. Remember, there's sort of getting wonky here for a minute they're doing it in two parts one the first part is to use an expedited process that will allow only democrats to raise the debt limit and that second part is the debt limit itself we got some news on that first part the process part it has been announced that there will be a vote tonight remember this is one i, I believe jack correct me if i'm wrong but they only need democrats to vote for this so the yes. tough votes out of the way this is finalizing that fast track process this is going to mean that some of the paying republicans could have caused Democrats uh, bringing up really toxic amendments for Democrats, lengthening out the process. None of that's going to happen. They're going to have 10 hours of debate and then be able to actually take a vote on raising the debt limit. And and Jack, I know you were uh, in the Senate today watching all of this unfold.
4: Yes. So if it wasn't complicated and convoluted enough, the tough vote was a procedural vote on a procedural bill. They needed 60 <laughs> votes to end debate on a bill, to then create a pathway for another bill, to increase the debt limit. Basically, they got 60 votes when they needed it. There will be a few votes remaining for them to actually update, uh, increase the debt limit. Uh, and those votes can be done on a partisan basis so that Republicans can say, hey, that that's a vote the Democrats took. It has to do with their uh, reconciliation bill. We had nothing to do with it. But there are some conservatives who are frustrated with the fact that they they had to – effectively, this procedural bill is blocking themselves preemptively from filibustering the next bill. And I caught up uh, in the House, on the House side, with Congressman Chip Roy, who's a Freedom Caucus guy, used to work for Ted Cruz, who was pretty frustrated. He's not the only one, and he, he told me amid a bunch of loud elevators, so excuse the background noise, what he thought of this. Let's play the sound on that.
2: Senate Republicans
5: just said, oh, we sent a letter saying we shouldn't vote for a debt ceiling increase. So let's not vote for closure for a debt ceiling increase, but instead let's give 10 votes to change a rule for 51 so that we can
6: avoid voting for the debt ceiling increase. That's dumb
4: so we had to bleep out the last part, but that's that's his <laughs> view on it. So I
6: want to
4: I want to <laughs> ask our guest, Gordon Gray, of the American Action Forum about this and in particular, the convoluted nature of this. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. I, can you explain to me why Republicans are not voting to end debate, but they're voting to end debate on a bill to preemptively block themselves from filibustering? What is the utility of all this? Uh, first, thanks
3: so much for having me and uh, your your question is is well taken because it could uh, certainly uh, looks like something of a pretzel that they 've twisted themselves into and i I think this is a function of uh, an evolving political landscape uh, I think uh, to resolve this the impasse in Congress and to get to the the needed outcome, which is raising the debt limit before uh, a uh, potential or technical uh, default um, somebody was going to have to back off their um, their position that they that they articulated uh, earlier in the fall when they were able to get a, a temporary debt limit increase and th- they were each they were all going to have to try to save face and that this uh, procedural bill has some face saving aspects For both parties in here, and you know that's that's what you need uh, to get to a compromise in the Senate. And notwithstanding the the silliness of the procedure, um, the outcome is a good one, which is uh, avoiding the self-imposed harm of of monkeying around with the debt limit.
6: You know, uh, Gordon, we've had this debate on the debt limit so many times, and and it feels like it usually tends to play out in in a very similar way. I know there's been some discussion in Congress about just getting rid of the debt limit altogether, giving the power to the Treasury Mm -hmm. Secretary to raise it or raising it to such an astronomical amount that they're not going to hit it for decades. Is this something you think that Congress should be seriously considering?
3: So, the, the utility in the debt limit in, in, in history has itself evolved. So when it was first created, uh, the debt limit wasn't um, a limiting uh, feature at all. Rather, it was actually designed to allow Congress, uh, excuse me, the Treasury Department to issue debt. Uh, without asking Congress for permission before the debt limit, they had to go to Congress to approve each individual debt auction. Now there's debt auctions every week. So imagine if we had to, if they had to run to Congress every few days. So originally, it was actually just to let Treasury issue more debt than otherwise, and then it became something of a political poison pill, and it it became a, a catalyzing event to. Uh, Take on uh, fiscal policy issues, and so in the 90s, in particular, you saw a lot of uh, compromise negotiations that uh, a lot of compromises that led to deficit reduction uh, and and uh, you know sort of deficit bargains um, between the two parties. And it's evolved again where we don't do that anymore. We don't do fiscal policy on debt limit bills. Um, We just try to blame the other side uh, for the nasty votes. And so I I think at this point it's losing its political salience. And so all that's left is the potential for economic harm from a potential default. So I think the utility of it uh, is is certainly uh, on the decline.
4: Can I ask real quick in in 30 or 60 seconds or so on the sure. Build Back Better Act? Uh there mm-hmm. there was a back and forth in Congress with some of the people from Penn Wharton who said, mm-hmm. you know, this is probably only going to contribute about a quarter point uh next year to inflation. What are what are your thoughts on how what's the inflationary effect if this becomes law? Is it actually significant?
3: So I, I well I think um uh, you know the the word significant there is 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 significant. So, uh, I think the question is, from the standpoint of deliberate federal policy, I don't want to overstate the infla- the potential inflationary effects, but directionally, they will increase aggregate demand next year. And so, in an, in a context in an environment where you would imagine that you know you'd want to pull all the policy levers um, to minimize uh, rising inflation, though certainly mindful of. The employment situation, um, that you would question whether or not uh, the bill is currently structured, which is really front loaded with, with deficit uh, financing up front. You'd question why you would want to do that.
6: Well, Gordon, we are going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much to Gordon Gray with American Action Forum. Coming up, we're going to take a look at the Biden administration's latest informed policy. This is Bloomberg.
0: You know success when you see it. five percent apy making your money work as hard as you do that's how you business differently learn more about quickbooks money at quickbooks.com slash five apy banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time you're
3: listening to bloomberg sound on with joe matthew on bloomberg radio
4: Welcome, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Bloomberg Government, subbing in for Joe today. We're closing it out. I, I'm I'm hosting solo now. Emily Wilkins, my colleague who has been uh, co-hosting with me, she's going back and forth from the Capitol to New York. You've heard her on Balance of Power. She's spending more time on Amtrak than President Biden ever even has. I am joined now by Jeannie Shianzano, our regular uh, Bloomberg politics contributor, as well as Amy Tarkanian, Republican strategist out of Nevada, former Nevada State Republican Party chair. Let's start off with the foreign policy news today. This is a pretty big foreign policy day for President Biden. They started with this uh, democracy summit that rankled China because it included Taiwan. But I'm particularly interested in his calls today regarding Russia. He made a call with uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and then followed up with some leaders uh, in the eastern portion of NATO to discuss his uh, video meeting earlier this week with Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin. So I'm, I'm curious, especially with echoes of 2014, the end of the Yanukovych regime in mind and, and the Russian incursion at that point into Crimea and the buildup of Russian troops near the border with Ukraine, uh, I, I think the key question here is how much can the U.S. do preemptively? Is it just a threat to of of military intervention which the president has made clear he does not want to do unilaterally uh, Jeannie, i'm curious what you make of this and what we should expect from a president to uh, preemptively head off any negative actions from russia what what can he actually do now
2: the president i think is on the right track here you know his as you as you mentioned, he has taken the military options largely off the table. That leaves him with sanctions. And while the administration has declined to specify what those sanctions might be, there has been some speculation on that. Those have proven to be effective in the past. They've also focused on something really critical, which is this coalition building, something the president talked about as a candidate and he has continued to talk about and focus on. And you've seen a lot of engagement by high-level administration of people from the United States with Russians, with Ukrainians, and the president continued that today. And the combination of those three factors are things that are likely, you know, you never know, you don't know how Putin's going to respond, but they are likely to be effective. And as many people have been talking about in the last few days, in recent past, they have been when it comes to Putin in places like Georgia and the Ukraine. So I think he is on the right track here. And I think the big difference Difference from the Trump administration probably the main difference is the coalition building aspect
4: hmm. now foreign policy I, I think is a significant risk politically here we, we've talked so much about the state of the economy the recovery uh, the the reconciliation bill that the Democrats are trying to get through and how that plays into the public's perception of the president. But I, I was looking back at the polling averages for the approval rating for President Biden and really it switched and he became much less popular at the end of August when the the pullout from Afghanistan was messier than a lot of people expected. Amy, how how significant a, a risk is? foreign policy, especially with an eye on Russia, to Biden's standing with the American public? And how much has that hurt him so far as opposed to the economic stuff?
7: I think it was definitely a major turning point where the majority of folks no longer felt safe and no longer felt that he had uh, not just our allies back, but our own back. And so it was a big letdown. Um, and you know, you can mention the economic sanctions, which I think are important. And I think that's, that's a good route to take what those are going to be. I, I'm not sure, but I think that's wise. Um, however, I was a little, uh, confused on why he would even say that militarily he was going to take that off the table, uh, whether if he was going to or not, I, I was surprised that he wouldn't just keep those cards close to his chest. Um, the fact that he's now being viewed as such a weak uh, commander in chief, and we, we're now learning, too, that possibly the Biden administration plans on advising Ukraine to hand over territory to Russia. That alone right there tells you they really don't have the Ukraine in mind. So I, I, I think the fact that he is being viewed as a very weak individual is going to be troubling um, for America.
4: Well, that's you know I think that's a key difference as as Jeannie touched on, uh, and I'm curious how much preemptively the president can do. How much of it is coalition building? How much of it, it may be a bit of saber rattling? Uh, the news from earlier today on the terminal uh, is that it, the president underscored U.S. support for Ukraine in its uh, standoff with Russia during a call with Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir. Zelensky. By the way, uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki addressed this. Let's hear how she described the exchange today.
1: It was not meant to be an indication of a deal cut, concessions made, any formal format or anything along those lines. More about the commitment to ongoing engagement.
4: So that's the latest. On today's foreign policy news from the president, a pretty big one. And, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier the debt limit vote that was supposed to happen shortly. I understand that is actually happening now. The Senate is voting right now on a bill to essentially fast track a future bill to increase the debt limit, avoid a federal default on payments Uh, And again, this is the easier vote than they had earlier today. They needed 60 votes earlier today. They got 64 as Republican leadership and some more moderate members joined Democrats in allowing this uh, expedited uh, path forward on the debt limit. This needs a simple majority. And then after that, uh, this process bill can go to the president. He can sign it and then they can fast track an actual debt limit increase through the Senate. Amy, I'm curious what you make of the Republican strategy on this. We we played sound from Congressman Chip Roy, who is pretty frustrated with the convoluted nature yeah. of this. <laughs> and in particular, I'm curious, Republicans are effectively voting, or they just did vote, 14 of them, to preemptively block themselves from filibustering an upcoming debt limit vote. Uh, Does this, in your mind, set any kind of precedent? Is this going to lead to rule changes? This is kind of bending the rules. What does that mean going forward?
7: Right. Well, I I wouldn't use the same words as Chip Roy, but I do agree with him. (laughs) We'd have to bleep you. was. Exactly. Um, I don't think that this was wise. I mean, this this happens every time. It doesn't matter who is in charge. Right. I mean, this seems to the blame game goes on uh, no matter who is in charge. um, It's going to just continue to harm um, the economy. Uh, We just do the same thing over and over. But it was it was confusing to me that those 14 Republicans, along with the majority leader, would give in so easily without even a a, a real discussion, Um, I do think that it sets a dangerous precedent um, because once you go down a a certain path, um, it's going to, you know, just like with with any other a uh, social bill that you put into place and you say oh it's just going to last for this one time no you know it's always going to be extended and it's never going to be retracted fully and that's what i think we just witnessed
4: well you i i think it, you can it can be taken essentially as a given that you're correct on The next step is another extension after this. This is to increase the debt limit, or rather this forthcoming bill will be to increase the debt limit. And lawmakers, uh, Democrats in both chambers have told me they're aiming for sometime shortly past the midterm. Uh, Doing the math myself, they haven't released this bill. It looks like they'll need to add a a couple trillion dollars to the debt limit to get it past the midterms. Jeannie, can you spell out why that's so significant? This, this, uh, has it been so politicized? this time that maybe it'll be easier to raise or suspend it again in December 2022 or January 2023? What would your expectations be there?
2: It's not going to be any easier to do it, but it's going to be timed a lot better if it comes after the election for the Democrats. The last thing they want to be doing next year before the election is going through this you know, crazy process as, as we've all been watching it again. So they want to put it off as long as they can until after the election. And they don't want what Mitch McConnell is going to try to do, even though he's got hit hard by this. And Amy was just talking, about some Republican uh, pushback against what what happened here, but they really don't want to be accused of having recklessly spent and added to the deficit. So they want to get as far away from this talk about raising the debt ceiling as possible. Because what McConnell feels like he's been able to do is he, even though they didn't do it on reconciliation, he got them to raise it on their own, so he mm-hmm. says, and he got them to get a number out there that he's going to try to use over this election season to hit them back.
4: Right. And so, Amy, let's let's play this out again. We don't have the bill in front of us, but we have CBO projections of what the debt is going to be. Um, It's going to be a a major point, again, uh, for Republicans on the campaign trail, on the debt and deficit going into 2022. Thank you again to Amy Tarkanian out of Nevada, Republican strategist. Jeannie Shianzano, our our regular Bloomberg politics contributor. And again, Congressman Josh Gottheimer, Democrat from New Jersey. And Gordon Gray from the American Action Forum. A lot of big news today on the debt limit, foreign policy, all of it. Again, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.